and good evening. I'm really excited to get to be here with you this evening and share the message that I get to share with you. It's one of those messages that the Lord has just put right here. Like it's just stuck and I could probably try and wrap 10,000 words around it and not quite get to the heart of what I hope that you can connect with tonight but I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would start pestering you with it too as well, right? So that I'm not alone in it. You're very welcome for that. I'm new to the Yam Fam, which is what we're calling us now. If you didn't know, the Yam Fam Young Adult Ministry Family, courtesy of Jillian Curtis, right? So we're excited about this, right? Yeah. We're gonna be coming out with some t-shirts soon that say, I am who you say I am probably with a picture of a yam somewhere on there, I feel like would be appropriate. So be on the lookout for that. But in in only uh, the way that the Lord can orchestrate, a couple months ago, I stepped into this role. And as I was praying through, is this a good fit, Lord? I do what every mother does. I asked my 11-year-old son, who, you know, I'm like, hey, you know me pretty well, right? There's this young adult women's ministry position thing open. Do you think it would be a good fit for me? And he looks at me with all of his adolescent attitude, and he goes, duh. (laughs) And he walks away. Here's a picture of my family, by the way. This is my husband. This is us in our sweet wedding day. And then this is us in like actual normal life. That's more of an accurate representation of who we are eating and dancing. It's about what we do in our home. And then this next picture is our family last week Uh, on Mother's Day. Corbin is 11, Brielle is eight years old. And I looked at them and I said, do you think, you know, I'm still a young adult? And they kind of stopped and they just, they stared at me. Right? And it was like they were counting the wrinkles on my forehead, I'm pretty sure. And Brielle cocks her head with this look of consolation on her face. And she goes, no, mommy, you're definitely (laughs) middle-aged. I didn't even know she knew what that was. I Googled it. I am very much still a young adult, friends. They were wrong. What I want to just confess to you tonight, my counselor told me once that if I'm feeling anxious or insecure about something, one of the best things I can do is share it with other people so it doesn't get stuck all up in my head. So I don't know where my husband went, but you can tell Ed I did my homework, okay? Thanks. Counseling homework. The thing that makes me insecure and really anxious about both standing here, about being in the role that I am in with young adult ministry is maybe I don't fit in. I didn't have a typical young adult stage of life. I got married at 21. I had our son just shy of 23. I walked across the stage to get my college diploma to the sound of my two-month-old crying in the background. So my fear is that I can't relate and that I might not have anything to say that you can relate to. So I'm confessing that to you tonight and trusting the Lord with something different because here's what I've learned. Regardless of what our circumstances look like around us, the decade plus of trying to figure out this whole adulting thing is just hard. It's no joke. The circumstances might look different for all of us, and that's a good thing. God is working out different stories in each and every one of us, and that's needed. We need the different perspectives and diversity that each one of us have to bring to the table. But that doesn't mean it's not difficult. I think one of the most confusing things is the way that the world tells us we should be as adults, right? 
We can build our life on all kinds of things. We can build it on finding the perfect husband or the perfect wife, on that someday family, on the right job, on the success, on the house, on the finances, on the likes, on the follows, on some sort of image we build of ourselves to put out there for other people to see. Even super spiritual godly things we can build on, like serving a ton or volunteering or doing this ministry thing. But if we are not building our lives on the solid rock of Jesus Christ alone, we are building toothpick structures that will collapse. I spent a lot of time and a lot of energy building some toothpick structures that collapsed pretty epically in my 20s before I stopped and slowed down and tried to pay attention to what God's voice sounds like to me and let him build in me his way rather than my own way. And that's what we hope for here, for you here in this Yam fam, is that as you figure out this adulting thing, that you would do it alongside a growing relationship with Jesus. It's confusing often because it is upside down the way that Jesus calls us to be in the world from the way that the world tells us we should be as adults who, you know, like contribute to society and things like that, right? When I was 14, I was a new believer and I fast forwarded in my brain. I had this prophetic vision of Carrie in her early 30s and she was like Christian Wonder Woman, right? Like crown, cape, maybe a few more articles of clothing, a shield that had a heart and a cross on it rather than a W, probably a Proverbs 31 necklace in there somewhere, right? I am in my early 30s now and I can tell you I am not that. Maybe the boots, because the boots were killer, but I'm not really super anything. I'm not super mom. I'm not super Christian. I'm not super wife or friend or ministry person or whatever my job title is these days. What I am is super dependent on Jesus. The gospel tells us that we are desperately needy at the core of who we are, that Jesus came not for the healthy, but for the sick, and that is us, that the last will be first, that the Holy Spirit comes, and he doesn't just turn our weakness into strength. His power is made perfect inside our weakness. The world will tell us that the best kinds of adults are self-sufficient and independent, can do it on their own. They're go-getters. They're successful. They don't stop. If I'm honest, a lot of the sin in my life looks like that. It looks like self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and pride. It's the opposite of needy. And so we try really, really hard to be that and do that, except for what happens when we run out. And I think maybe this last 18 months, some of us have run out, <laughs> maybe for the first time. And we're looking around and we're confused. I ran out really early on in my 20s, which I now see as a gift of the Lord's grace and mercy. But what happens is you start looking around and comparing yourself to everyone else. They have what it takes, but I don't. And that must mean that I'm a failure. And then we can end up in these places of loneliness and anxiety and depression. And we might start believing the lie that God sees us that way too. And we would be very wrong. Tonight, I want to spend a little bit of time in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. If you have your Bible, this would be a good time to take it out. If not, we'll have the sections up on the screen as well. And I want to pay attention to a core characteristic of who Jesus is that I think we sometimes miss, both for ourselves and as the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. 
So we're going to start by reading chapter 6 at verse 30. It says this. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Put a pin in that verse, remember it. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. This is like the disciples' groupies. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. This is Jesus. And he had compassion for them. When I read this passage, the central word that pops out to me is compassion. It's helpful to know the context of this chapter here. In the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus had sent the disciples out. He'd given them his authority to go and do the work of ministry in their community. But he told them not to pack for their trip. He's sending them out to proclaim the kingdom, but he's asking them, he's commanding them to do it from a place of dependence. In Mark 6, verse 30, then, we're seeing the disciples come back to Jesus. They're like my son after he scored his first touchdown in a football game, right? They're like pride and exhilaration. Look what happened, Jesus. Look what we got to do. And Jesus says what they want him to say. Hey, let's go to the beach. Let's rest, right? You earned it. Mark 6, 31, then, it's almost like this throwaway verse, the second half. It sets up our understanding and our definition of compassion for the rest of the chapter. Basically what it says is that there was so much going on, the disciples were so busy that they hadn't had time to eat themselves. Newsflash, spoiler alert, we're about to see Jesus perform a miracle and ask the disciples to be part of it with them where he's going to feed hungry people. He's calling the disciples into this next miracle on empty stomachs so that they can experience the same hunger and the same need as the crowd themselves. Our English word for compassion comes from the Latin word, which means with suffering. Compassion means literally to suffer with, to suffer alongside. And this is what Jesus is setting the disciples up to do. Let's keep reading Mark 6, 34, the second half. He had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. I love this phrase. He had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is language of care. Jesus is saying, I see the people. I see the needs of the people, and his compassion means that he desires to care for them. Shepherds protected their sheep. They guided their sheep. They corrected their sheep when necessary. They, at the end of the day, would lay down their lives for their sheep if necessary. This is Jesus caring for the emotional needs of the people. I just, I need to know that someone else sometimes feels like a sheep without a shepherd. Am I the only one? Like sometimes, even this week, like I walked around my house just anxiously wondering, like, like I might as well have been like, bah, bah. Like my kids looking at me like I'm not such I am a little bit. Sometimes we feel that way. And Jesus knows and he enters into our anxious wandering as our shepherd who sees us and cares for us. We then see that he teaches the crowd from his compassion. And this is spiritual food for their hungry souls. Jesus in John 1.1 is called the word of God. The literal word of God himself speaks to the crowd 
and they're given light and life. The words that created them in the first place to speak to their souls. That is the compassion of Jesus. Let's keep reading John six or Mark 6, 35 and 36. When it grew late, this is my favorite, you guys. This is the disciples get sassy with Jesus here. When it grew late, his disciples came and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. I picture the disciples listening to these words of Jesus, right? Who knows how long they had to listen. I have a feeling that Jesus was long-winded, right? So they're sitting and they're waiting for him to be done. They're not taking in any of this information because they're tired and they're hungry and they thought they were going on a beach vacation and they're not. So as soon as Jesus gets done, they run up to him and they're like, Jesus, it's late. The people, they know just what to say to get Jesus' attention, right? They can't make it about themselves. This is Jesus. They got to make it about the people. The people are hungry. Send them away. They need to eat. The only thing we can do is send them away. Essentially what they're doing here is looking the other way to attend to their own needs. The disciples justify this perspective. You know, Jesus, they need to get to the village, right? Like Bojangles closes at 10. They got to get there in time. It's not that this is, <laughs> this is convicting, friends. It's not that the disciples are unaware of the need. It's that they are too distracted by their own needs to mimic the compassionate heart of Jesus. Instead, they numb themselves to the need that is literally pushing up against them. But the people are hungry and Jesus doesn't send them away. His compassion makes a way to meet their physical needs too. Here we see Jesus applying mercy to emotional, spiritual, physical needs, whole people. The disciples, just like us, they're compassionate because they're made in the image of God and the heart of God is compassionate. But <laughs> the disciples, just like us, run out of compassion because of sin and distraction in our lives. Their hearts are numbed and numb hearts become hard hearts. However, the need never runs out and we, <laughs> just like them, often take the easy way out and look the other way. We, like the disciples in this passage, have a decision to make in this moment. When we're surrounded by need pushing at us on all sides, we can remain distracted. We can numb it out. We can turn our face away. We can self-protect. Self-protection is the most powerful anesthesia, and it is the antithesis to compassion and fear. Fear is another powerful anesthesia for our hearts. We're afraid that we may not be able to meet all of the needs, and that's true. We're afraid that if our hearts break for someone else, we might not be able to put them back together the same way. We're afraid that we might lose part of ourselves in the process, maybe our power or our status, our comfort or our security, even part of what we thought was our identity. And we're afraid that if we get too close, we might start seeing ourselves. We might see our own need reflected back to us in ways that scare us. We might have to come face to face with the fragility of our own lives too, and we will be tempted to look the other way. But Jesus, 
Again and again, the disciples are called into a place of dependence before Jesus asks them to go and pour out compassion. This dependence is meant to challenge their indifference, their distraction, their numb hearts, their fear. When we try and minister from our own strength and resources and gifts and passions, we will soon find that we don't have a whole lot of compassion to give away. We'll run out and then we will numb out. Jesus brings the disciples to a place of dependence on purpose to demonstrate that compassion does not just require something from us. Compassion requires all of us. It breaks us and then pours us out so that we have to, we have to come back to Jesus for more. Let's read the rest of the passage here. This is verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, again, sassy, are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, very patiently, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in the groups of hundreds and of fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets, leftovers, extra, full of broken pieces and of the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. I picture the jaws of the disciples hitting ground when Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. We don't have anything to give, right? And what we do have was meant for us. But in the hands of Jesus, when they give what they do have, the entire meal that they provide is directed and multiplied by Jesus himself. Jesus, I picture it, they would have to have kept coming back to Jesus for more. What little the disciples have to give in the hands of Jesus never runs out. And you know, you know that as they see Jesus multiplying this bread, you know they're snacking on it as they go, right? Like one for me and two for you and one for me and two for you. You know that they're doing that. Jesus is nourishing their hungry stomachs, their hungry souls as they go out and nourish the crowd. Their indifferent hearts waking up as Jesus nourishes them. It's interesting, the Greek word for compassion here means heart, like you would think, like care, but it also means guts. And I love that. I think that Jesus, just like I do in his humanity, when I really let myself suffer alongside someone else, I do, I feel it in my guts. It's this twisting of self, fully emotional and fully physical, so much pressure that I feel like I might burst into a thousand pieces, and maybe that's the point. The disciples watch as Jesus shows compassion. He shepherds, he teaches, he feeds the crowd like he might just burst into a million pieces, each piece carrying the DNA of mercy and of grace, waiting for someone to receive it. There are echoes of another important New Testament passage in this passage here. In the book of John, when the story of the 5,000 is told, John says that it happens at the time of Passover. Passover is the Jewish celebration of when God rescued them from slavery 
One year later, after the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples will sit around a table with Jesus. We call it the Last Supper because it's on the eve of his crucifixion, but they don't know that yet. And around that table, Jesus does the same thing. He takes a, a loaf of bread, <laughs> he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he hands it to the disciples, and he says this in Luke 22, 19. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you know what they're thinking about. You know those words recall their last Passover where Jesus broke five loaves for 5,000 and compassion poured out from the middle. It is the compassion of Jesus that leads him to the cross where his body breaks and compassion pours out an overflowing source we are called to come back to again and again for forgiveness of our sins, for healing of our hurts. And then we're called to give it away. It is because of Jesus, the author of compassion, that our numb, scared, distracted hearts can be transformed into hearts of compassion. It's important to note here that compassion isn't just feeling sorry for someone. It's not just a handout. Jesus could have felt sorry for us from heaven, right? Like sitting in his throne, he could have sent us some rainbow and heart emojis and been like, hey, that looks hard. I'm sorry, right? But he didn't do that. He left heaven. He took on a body so that he could walk with us in our pain, in our suffering, in our sin, we call this the incarnation, and it is motivated entirely by Jesus' desire to suffer with and then ultimately for us. You see in Jesus on the cross that he makes a way for us, for our sin to be forgiven, for our wounds to be healed, for us to begin walking in freedom. And here's why this is good news for us as we figure out this whole adulthood thing. Joy and suffering are not mutually exclusive. As we grow into maturity, we will see more and more that often joy and suffering are side by side, right together, and they meet in the heart of compassion. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews 12, 2, which says that Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, chose because of the joy set before him to endure the cross joy and suffering side by side. And I think that joy is many things, but one thing it is, is you. It's a relationship with you out of the heart of his compassion, beginning now and moving on into eternity and an invitation for you to invite others into this fold of a compassionate family. There's this beautiful story that I heard recently. You can put the picture up here. I think this is a a picture of the kind of compassion that we're talking about here is two men, I'm not going to get their names right, Hyxia uh, is blind in both eyes, and his friend Wenxi, who was a double arm amputee at the age of three. And these two men, in order to provide for their families, they have a plot of trees that they're growing. And to get there, one of the men... When she, he's a double arm amputee, he leads the way through the forest and Hyxia, his friend, holds onto his jacket sleeve and has said, I am his hands 
and he is my eyes. There's no us and them barrier between them here. Just a recognition of two human beings who both have need and both have something to give, offering each other compassion and dignity in a mutually beneficial relationship. This has been magnified in my own life, the the practice of compassion, this receiving of compassion through the story of my dad. My dad had bipolar disorder. He was diagnosed when I was a baby. By the time that I was in high school, the medication that he was on had reached a toxic level and he had brain damage in response. And he then spent most of my high school and college years in and out of seasons of homelessness which meant that in order to visit my dad, I would go to these shelters, these homeless shelters, and while I was there, I was completely numb. I had this wall of guilt and shame and confusion. I couldn't feel sorry for him. I couldn't even really care for him or for the people that he was around. It was almost too much. I felt like if I let any of the pain of it live at all, I might get swallowed by it and not come back. It wasn't until I began serving in the food pantry here at Hope about 10 years later that I started letting the compassion of God shift something in me. I started letting him care for me in that space. I started paying attention to where I had felt hurt, where I wanted to offer compassion to my dad. And this really beautiful thing happened. Jesus met me in that space. He became my shepherd. He began caring for me. And so when someone would walk into the food pantry who reminded me of my dad, I was able to just sit with them. Not with this barrier between us where I had something to give and they had something to receive. It was just this mutual understanding. I could hear their stories suffer alongside, celebrate alongside. I could point them to hope. I could point them to truth, and they would often do the same for me as well. There's this misconception, I think, that we need to serve and give and offer compassion once we have our own ish together, right? If that were true, I would never serve anyone because I don't know how to do that. I don't think it's true. I think we can actually only give this kind of gritty suffering alongside, suffering with compassion to the extent that we've first received it ourselves. And so my question for you tonight is, are you in the practice, the regular practice of receiving the compassion of Jesus? And are you in the practice of giving it away? It's not flashy or romantic. Sometimes it's painful because it magnifies the need we spend so much time trying to hide. But when we recognize, when we allow Jesus access to the areas of our life where our hearts have been broken, when we receive his mercy and his grace over those things, that area is a place where your great pain meets the world's great need. Often we think that we're the only ones in that space. We're the only ones experiencing the thing that we're experiencing, and that's just not true. Somebody somewhere needs the compassion that you can give precisely because you understand their broken heart. And even if you can't understand the exact pain, 
or the exact need. You can recognize your own need enough to walk with a fellow human whose need just happens to look a little different than your own. And this mutually beneficial relationship leads to the kind of joy. I don't have a lot of words to describe the kind of joy that I get to experience when I'm sitting next to someone, not fixing what they're going through, not feeling sorry for them, but just with them in their suffering. There's a joy that happens there that I can't describe. And it's worth moving toward. Joy and suffering are not mutually exclusive and they meet inside compassion. We cannot meet every need all of the time. Jesus in his human body didn't meet every need all of the time. But when Jesus looks at us, and I just, I picture like he holds our face. (laughs) And he says, you, (laughs) you give them something to eat. We better be a people ready to pour out compassion and we better be near enough to Jesus ourselves to have something to give away.